Good morning. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. My name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. We're really glad that you're with us this morning. If you're uh, a regular tender, one of our family here, we're so glad to be with you to be able to gather this morning. If it's your first time with us or you're uh, you've only been coming for a little while. We're thankful for the opportunity to worship with you. We hope you feel welcome, and we look forward to connecting with you more deeply. This is also an important uh, Sunday for Swans Creek Elementary. Um, it, they will be starting school tomorrow, a, a new school year, after a really challenging 18 months as a leadership team and teachers, and uh, expecting lots of students back here in the building tomorrow. And so, uh, naturally, they're anxious and concerned as we get packed up today and as we use the facility that we would leave it ready for the, uh, the school to do really well. So we'd appreciate help at the end of the service and making sure that we do an extra good job serving them as they uh, have made this space available to us. One of the things you can do, uh, you know, we have a lively place. There are probably 65, 70 kids in childcare today. And uh, today, particularly, if you can, when you get your children, if you can kind of keep them close by after the service, you can hang out and fellowship and that sort of thing. But uh, often kids are running around, getting into lots of stuff stuff. This Sunday, we'd like you to uh, be particularly watchful to uh, take care of your children and keep them close by as we make sure that the building looks great as we exit today and support them uh, as a staff. And so um, if you see any staff around and they've got words to help set things, please uh, heed their uh, instruction and support whatever they're up to as well. Uh, with that being said, we're going to look at Mark chapter 14, verse 32, as we have one of the last of a few sermons left in our summer series, um, and as we focus on the topic of temptation from this passage, one that I think you'll see is a very famous one and fitting for how Ryan prayed. I'm thankful that he prayed for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan particularly, and um, it's sobering to consider uh, the cost of what it means to live for Christ. And in this passage, I think, will help uh, us think through that as well. Verse 32. Mark writes, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death, Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Lord, as we come to these words, we pray that you would allow them to instruct our hearts and grant us wisdom as we seek to obey your will. 
Lord, that we would have insight and understanding into the ways that sin tempts us and how we can watch and pray that we not fall into temptation. Lord, I pray that you would show us in Jesus a pattern of devotion that would stir our hearts to a fresh sense of consecration and commitment to doing your will. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christian, seek not yet repose. Cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. Principalities and powers, mustering their unseen array, wait for thy unguarded hours. Watch and pray. Gird thy heavenly armor on, wear it ever night and day. Ambushed lies the evil one. Watch and pray. Hear the victors who overcame. Still they mark each warrior's way. All with one sweet voice exclaim, Watch and pray. Hear, above all, hear thy Lord, Him thou lovest to obey. Hide within thy heart His word. Watch and pray. That's an old hymn called Christian Seek Not Yet Repose by Charlotte Elliott. And that hymn captures a good deal of the heart of this passage. Another way of saying it is, Christian, now is not the time to rest. In regards to temptation and the battle and fight against sin that seeks to conquer and destroy our lives, now is not the time to rest. Jesus understood that there are no days off from temptation Recovery groups like AA and Celebrate Recovery know that there are no days off from continuing on the road to freedom and obedience. But do we? Do you? Are you ready to walk with Jesus and fulfill the will of God? Or are you asleep in the garden? See, that's the question that this passage really poses to us today as we think about facing temptation. It's a simple one. Are you watchful and praying, or are you asleep in the garden? You see, the Garden of Gethsemane was a fitting place for Jesus to go and pray before his crucifixion. And it doesn't seem to be accidental that he chose this location. And the fact that it's included in the location is highlighted in each of the four Gospels, which rarely highlight the same event across the board gives us an indication that all of the writers thought that the name of the garden was significant. Well, the word Gethsemane means oil press. It was the place among the olive garden where the the olive oil was made by putting it under pressure and removing the valuable oil. The place where the oil would be pressed out to bring out the oil. And Jesus experiences there the weight and pressure of what lies ahead of him pressing in on his life. So much so that we read in several of the other accounts that it caught, the pressure became so immense that his, his capillaries burst and he was sweating blood under the immensity of the moment. And there, under his distress and his pressure, he models facing temptation and instructs us how to do the will of God. 
And let's look together at what we can learn from Jesus about obedience under pressure. As we, as we look through this passage, there are three particular ways, I think, that we can learn obedience under pressure from Jesus and how we can live a life where we fight temptation, where we're watchful toward those things that would cause destruction in our lives. Let's look closely at the text together for those things today. The first one is this. I want us to look, if we're going to be obedient under pressure, we have to look at the devotion of Jesus. We have to take a closer look at the sort of devotion we see exhibited here in the life of Jesus. One of, the, one of the great benefits of this passage is that it rescues us from the sort of spiritual idealism that will cripple us. In the end, there are moments of the spiritual life that simply call for our devotion to the will of God. Verses 32 through 36 here show us a situation where Jesus is acknowledging that our experience at times of doing God's will will, it, it, it will and can be undesirable. I mean, think about it. Here we see these details in the passage, and we're used to thinking that, that spiritual obedience and following God, doing God's will, will always bring us into situations of thriving and joy and comfort. Now, in the long term, it's never wise to sin. It brings more destruction than the, obedi the costly obedience that is its alternative. But there's a sort of pie-in-the-sky spiritual idealism that says if we obey God and stay close to His will, we'll never suffer, we'll never experience difficulty, we'll never be derided for our decisions, we'll never feel the weight and the crushing disappointment of what it can be like to be rejected by others or endure a long and difficult obedience. And all of that is just false spiritual idealism. Look at the devotion of Jesus. Now, a little side note. This is the sort of passage that should give you plenty of good reason to trust the Bible. Basically because of what it tells us here about the, the life of Jesus. The Bible is a book that is devoted to telling us the truth. And here, at a critical moment in Jesus' life, we see what many would look at as sort of weakness in the Savior. We see him not presented as someone uh, who, who easily walks up the hill to Calvary. We see him as somebody who is wrestling with the reality of what it's going to cost to do the will of his father. What it's going to cost to fulfill his calling. So much so we see this really powerful, honest moment where he says, Father, if it's at all possible, remove this cup. I don't want to do this. You see... Oftentimes, you know, if, you, if we were just looking at a book about legends, we would, we, would, we would not get that sort of a real glimpse into the wrestling of Jesus. You know, if you're just trying to convince somebody of the heroic nature of someone, you don't write this moment into the text. Furthermore, you don't take the disciples who are going to be the carriers of this message and have them asleep in the garden multiple times. But the reason it's here is because it happened. And it then benefits us as we see Jesus walking through this pressure moment. We see reality rather than spiritual idealism. And we see a trustworthy word that can actually help us as we wrestle to do God's will. And this is what we learn. That the road ahead for Jesus in doing God's will is greatly distressing and troubling for him. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? 
We don't often think about the spiritual journey ahead for us, that at times it will be greatly distressing and troubling if we remain faithful. That obedience can be a distressing thing. But that's what, that's what Jesus experienced. So much so that he says his soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death, which I think we should take to mean that it feels like dying is the better option than staying in this state of inward turmoil that obedience is going to cost. That's what he means. Yet it's the will of God. Yet it's his purpose it's his calling it's actually his joy to continue forward but that joy comes with a cost jesus not only experiences that inwardly he expresses this discomfort with the cost of doing the will of god in an outward prayer in the form of asking god the father if he would remove the cup which essentially we're to understand from reading the old testament and other symbolism is removing the cost he will have to pay for the sins that we have committed as god's wrath is pictured as stored up in a cup That God's justice against sin has been gathered together in a cup that Jesus now is going to drink to the bottom as he goes to the cross. And Jesus pauses in that moment to account for where he's going. And he says, Father, remove this cup. Jesus knew that there are times when proceeding with the will of God is about the most uncomfortable thing you can do for the moment. This isn't spiritual idealism that so much of our Christianized church culture can traffic in. We're resisting temptation and fulfilling our calling and doing the will of God as a matter of finding our true self and following our desires. There's no resistance involved. Or even the sort of misleading positivity spirituality that that expects that doing what's good and right will always be accompanied with positive outcomes and emotions in our life. Happy states of comfort. No, this is real life obedience. In a fallen world, in a broken world. It's real life obedience and Jesus shows us that the first step to obedience is a consecrated devotion to doing the will of God. You see, that's what we're to see here. That the first step in obedience is a consecrated devotion to doing the will of God. He speaks about the turmoil. He acknowledges God's complete ability to do all things, but he ends with his highest priority after saying all of those things when he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Look at the devotion of Jesus. Listen, I think think you need to take, and I need to take a quick look this morning at the devotion of Jesus and consider whether we have settled ourselves on doing God's will no matter the cost. Part of preparing to battle temptation is that we would begin with consecrating ourselves to obedience to God. Setting aside our will, setting aside our trajectory despite our fears, despite our concerns, despite the cost that we have determined not what I will but yours be done. 
Listen, I think it's easy to assume and you come into church or maybe claim here to be a Christian that you've settled this, that you've decided that you're going to do the will of God, but, but if, if my experience is right in my own heart and pastoral experience uh, tells me anything, it's that regularly we begin to sort of walk away from a sense of devotion. That this sort of consecration requires a regular watchfulness and prayer. And so I wonder right now in your life whether you're at a spot where you can say honestly to the Lord, not my will but yours be done. Many of us are failing to fight temptation before we start because in our system of devotion and commitment to God, there are exceptions to doing God's will. And there are expectations that it will be easy and successful. Every person who desires a life of faithfulness to God must reckon with a moment in time where they imitate Jesus and say, not my will, but yours be done. And regularly come back to a moment in the garden with watchfulness and prayer and see if we have a consecrated will. We're going to learn later that that's not going to be enough. But it is the starting point. A consecrated will is the beginning of our battle and fight against temptation. And here we see Jesus showing us what it looks like to devote ourselves to the will of God in the face of difficult obedience. So look at the devotion of Jesus. That's the first thing we see. The second thing, and with that first thing, you should take that. You should think and ask yourself the question, is my will consecrated to doing God's will? Second point, listen to the direction of Jesus. Jesus gives some instruction to his disciples here that is set in the midst of his model and example that is helpful for us. When Jesus returns from praying, he finds that the disciples are sleeping. Remember that Jesus is distinctively aware of what is coming upon them. He knows what lies ahead. He may not know every last detail vividly at this moment, but he knows he's headed to the cross, that he's going to be arrested, that this is the purpose that God has called him to, and he's preparing himself there in the garden. He has actually instructed his disciples about that. He has warned them multiple times. Even when Peter is is saying, Lord, I'll die with you, Jesus warns him about what that's really going to mean. So over and over, Jesus is warning them that there is this hour coming upon them that they need to be prepared for, and he himself at that moment is preparing for. So he's warned them. Jesus himself feels this urgency, this need to commune with God himself and set his soul on moving forward in his calling and obedience without wavering. And in contrast, Jesus sees in in verse 37 and 38, that the disciples seem unaware that their great hour of testing is about to come upon them. Have you ever been worried or nervous about something? Have you ever been anxious about a coming moment in your life, a difficulty you were facing? What's the first thing that goes out the door? Sleep. I mean, it's not easy to sleep when you know what you're about to face. We find it difficult. That's one of the ways we see in this passage that the disciples seem to have not opened their ears to the warnings that Jesus has been given. That they've had their ears closed, they're not prepared because here they are in the midst of this garden. They've just gathered for the first Lord's Supper, right? They're celebrating the Passover. They think they're at a celebration and Jesus is at a moment of consecration. And they're asleep. 
I don't know about you, but holidays are a time of rest. Vacations are a time of rest. I usually don't, I don't regularly take naps, but when I'm on vacation or when uh, it's a holiday, I might nap in the afternoon. The disciples are in the midst of a holiday. And Jesus is in the midst of a holy day. They seem unaware. And so Jesus instructs them. He comes to them. He says, are you sleeping? I asked you to watch and to pray with me. And so he speaks to them and he warns them and he says to them what has been said multiple times in this series. Watch out. (laughs) Be warned. Raise your awareness and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Jesus' instruction in the face of challenging obedience in times of temptation is that we need to have a heightened sense of watchfulness and prayer if we're going to be ready to face temptation. It's not enough to just consecrate our will to the Lord, but that we would regularly be watchful and prayerful as we walk through particularly moments of pressure and difficulty. You know what it shows us, Jesus shows us that temptation is the sort of thing that we fall into unexpectedly when we're quote-unquote spiritually asleep. That word enter into in your ESV can be translated fall into. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. I don't know if you've ever fallen into anything, but it's not a pleasant experience. Falling into something is something that we do unexpectedly. And here we understand that that much of our spiritual life and much of the failures of our spiritual life are not things we've necessarily just set our eyes and heart on. They're things that we've fallen into out of a lack of watchfulness. And so he says, watch and pray. Temptation is the sort of thing that we should prepare for. Jesus is preparing himself for the temptation he will face as he walks to the cross. And at the same time, he's trying to prepare the disciples for all that they're going to experience in the midst of it as well. He models the same thing that he instructs. But what does it look like for us to watch and pray? I just want to give you four things. They're kind of tucked into the passage here. Real quick, I'm just going to run through, like, how do you watch and pray? Like, what what could benefit practically could you take as we are looking at this passage so that you could have a rhythm of watching and praying about things in your life that you might fall into? Let me just say, the first one is become aware of inward activity of the heart. If we're going to watch and pray, we have to become aware of the inward activity of our own hearts. Jesus knows what is coming, doesn't he? Jesus knows what is coming, and he can identify his own fears. Do you see that in the text? Like, like he prays a really insightful prayer about his own inner life, doesn't he? He looks in and he says, you know, I I want an out. (laughs) He knows, he feels the pull of that. He he knows that the, the thing that is coming that poses a threat And he can feel it going on inside himself. So much so that he feels the need to get away and ask the other brothers with him to join him in watchful prayer. That's a a really keen awareness. He can articulate his inward concerns and understanding of his own potential failure. He can articulate those to the Father. He can speak them. 
He's aware of the desire with him to shrink back from fear. He even expresses alternatives and wrestles with whether or not there are other ways forward that are faithful before he consecrates to God because he doesn't want to be in the moment trying to figure that out. You see how aware Jesus is of what's going on? And so many times, that sort of inward awareness is something we avoid. Oh, let's not worry about that. Thinking about our own weakness. Understanding where our potential vulnerabilities are. We flee from reflection. And we fail to really understand. Even after we fall, we don't think, hey, what brought me there? Why am I susceptible to that particular type of sin? Is there any history there that would explain why that's a weakness for me? Is there any strategy that I could use? Are you aware of the inward activity of your own heart? Second, second thing to, to watch and pray, bring the situation before God with honesty. Jesus does not just see what is going on inside his heart. He takes the weight of it to God and he works through it under the eyes of the Father. He doesn't just work through it sort of psychologically within himself. You see, what happens when we turn our inward thinking into prayer, it becomes a conversation with what we know to be true from God. And so you may, be, you may think just sort of meditating through the issue would be helpful, but here he, he speaks to God, and when we speak to someone, we're keenly aware of what they believe as well. I know this because on any given Sunday morning as I preach, I not only know what I mean, I'm aware of what you might think I mean, and I'm thinking about how I'm communicating based on what I think you understand. And it sharpens the way that I might communicate an idea. Similarly, when we take our inward thoughts before God and we begin to speak to Him, we become aware, oh, He might not agree with me. He might see this differently. And prayer is like a crucible that, that begins to examine our own thoughts with God. And so he does it honestly because he's inwardly aware. He brings it there. And, it, and his own thoughts about the situation are transformed in those moments into a time of devotion and preparedness rather than a lack of clarity. But that can only be done in honest prayer. I mean, that's so boldly honest what he says to the Father that I don't think we often pray with that kind of honesty. We pray the way we think God wants us to pray. Instead of starting at a place where we confess to God what we see. And so we want to we develop this transparency as we watch and pray that says, Lord, this is what I'm seeing in here. Are you seeing this? Is there another way? Should I go this direction? And, and we begin to take what we know about God from his word and it shapes the conversation. Watch and pray. He consecrates himself through prayer with God to doing the will of God that he had come to fulfill because he brings it before God. Third thing, bear the cost before you move forward. One of the things Jesus teaches us to do and what watching and praying can look like in our life is notice Jesus speaks the cost out loud, doesn't he? There's a sense he's going to drink the cup. Jesus knows what that means. And, and there, in the midst of this time of watchful prayer, Jesus is acknowledging the cost and he's deciding to pay for it. He's not waiting until he gets into the moment to decide whether he is ready to pay the bill. He has made a decision that he will pay up when the time comes. 
You see, this is what it looks like for us to watch and pray. We identify what does it look like in any given situation in our life or the things that are most pressing in, in on us. What does it look like for me to obey God? What is it going to cost me? And we decide in that moment with God that we're willing to pay the cost. And we walk forward with a sense of watchfulness, knowing at least as best as we can what we're ready to pay. Now, honestly, we can't always know. But I would, I would say this, there's a part of giving an account, of taking an account that prepares us for temptation when we decide that we're going to bear the cost before we move forward. That's what it means to watch and pray. Lastly, broaden the load to others around you. Do you notice that Jesus does not hide his own distress and even expects the disciples to bear the weight of it with him? You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus says, could you not watch with me for even an hour? He's not just concerned about them. He's, he's recognizing that, that spiritual health in a community of believers and disciples, like he's built around them, means that we have a real awareness of what's going on with one another. That we're able to pray for one another and pray with one another in those moments of distress. Good leadership doesn't necessarily always hide the difficulties from everyone. Spiritual leadership almost never hides the genuine difficulties as we walk people through what it costs to obey the Lord. The best thing we can do is learn to bear with those things honestly together so that we can watch and pray. So they may not live up to the expectation in this moment, but it gives us some idea of what Jesus means when he says, watch and pray. He says, could you not watch with me? And it points out this is something we do together. We watch and pray for one another. So those are four things that can help us understand Jesus' instruction that we see here to watch and pray that we not fall into temptation. You need to look and see whether those are rhythms in your life. You might look at the areas where you've faced the most failure in guarding against temptation and beginning to begin to ask yourself, Am I really watching and praying? Am I doing these things in my life that will help guard me against the onslaught of temptation? And then lastly, we learn from the discernment of Jesus. Jesus says specifically then, he gives an insight. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Last Saturday evening, I crossed an experience of my, off my theoretical bucket list. Thanks to many of you and the kindness of the church, we were able to go to Montana for a week-long trip together. Part of that was fly fishing and exploring the mountains and doing a whole lot of things. But we were in Montana near the Blackfoot River, which is the scene of the story and movie, A River Runs Through It, which is all about fly fishing. Okay, this is a fly fishing illustration. I went to Montana. You guys had to expect it if you know me. My dad and I decided to trek out into the mountains of Montana near Ovando and find a spot on the Blackfoot River where we could go fly fishing. We found ourselves in the parking lot of Russell Gates Campground full of excitement in the early evening and ready to take on the world. The river is reasonably wide and at the, at, you know, at the park there's parts that are sort of fast moving and slower, some shallow, some, de some deeper. 
And we're there, and it's about 6 o'clock, and we, look, we meet a guy in the parking lot who seems to have been there often, and he says, your best bet is to get across the river and go down the other side. There are great holes below there. You're going to love it. It's be easy to get down in. You're in for a great night. So we're getting more and more excited in our exuberance. We come there to the edge of the water. We look at it. We find a nice shallow place where we can get across. I should stop here and let you know that my dad has had three hip replacement surgeries, and he's 71. And uh, his most recent hip replacement surgery was in March. And so he's still, if you know anything about hip replacements, he's still in some level of recovery uh, from that hip resurgery, but moving around pretty good. So we found a fairly shallow place, and with my assistance, I helped him across the river, and he was just leaning on my arm and stabilized him, got him across to the other side. We made our way down the river, got located, and there we were, and we caught fish all night. It was amazing. It was just like we had hoped. So if you know anything about fly fishing, right before dark, the last hour can be some of the best fishing that exists. But as we were going across the river and I was sort of stabilizing my dad through some of the faster, lower current, I had the thought, we probably should make sure to get out of here before dark. And uh, we made our way across. And, and, and the truth is, that's not something we've ever been prone to do while fishing. My sister on the phone the other night said, uh, if you remember, you used to come in at 1130 at night and we were wondering if you'd be there and you guys would make steak on the grill after fishing all evening. And I said, I do kind of remember, but that was like 25 years ago. So, so I, you know, I just made a note and I said to him, hey, we should probably make sure to get out here before dark. Well, right before, right before dark, I mean, things just got super active. I caught probably three of the largest fish that I caught on the whole trip. And he was like cheering me on, you know, he's like, you should keep going, you know. And he finally, he kind of got out of the water. He's like, don't worry about me, I'm fine, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I, in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, we should probably get going. So finally, I just quit. And uh, we grab, uh, gather our stuff together and we start making our way back up the river and you know like there's a part of the day sometimes where it's like in five minutes it goes from kind of dusk to like really dark we were in that moment he had seen a bear 30 yards above him you know an hour before that walked across the water not a grizzly um but uh you know we're in the middle of the woods and so we get there and we walk up to the stream where i thought we had come across did i look out and i just i'm like i, I can't tell Slow water from fast water, deep water from shallow water. And this isn't going to be easy. And, uh, you know, honestly, I stopped and prayed. I said, we're probably going to need to pray about this. And uh, for two reasons. One, that you get across safely and my siblings don't hate me for the rest of my life for killing you out here in the middle of Blackfoot. <laughs> and uh, that we would cooperate because there's a big chance we're going to yell at each other in the middle of the river. And what would have been a safe passage will turn into a disaster. You know, it's father-son, right? I mean, let's just get honest. Let me say it straight. There are times when a willing spirit cannot overcome physical limitations. You know, eventually we made it across, but not without fear and trembling. But I thought, coming out of there, there are times where a willing spirit that drew us out into that place cannot overcome the weakness of physical limitations. In the same way, spiritually speaking, there are times when a willing spirit cannot overcome your habits of spiritual weakness. I, I remember thinking, I'm in over my head. I'm not sure I can get him across here safely or at least, you know, alive. We made it. It was fine, and it'll be one of those memories we'll never forget. Never forget, I promise you. He probably will not let me forget it. 
But listen, there's a much more serious consequence to those moments where we thought, I want to obey the Lord. Was enough that we put ourselves in situations that our habits of spiritual weakness were not prepared to carry us through. This is what Jesus means. He, he, he gives us an insight. He says, he says to Peter and James and John, your spirits are willing, but your flesh is weak. He means by that, that we can have an inward experience where we say, Lord, I want to do what's right. And find ourselves so often weakened by our past habits, the weakness of our flesh, temptation, falling in those moments even though we said we wanted to be devoted to the Lord. The instruction to watch and pray is based on the insight that there are places that we will put ourselves that we cannot get ourselves back out of because of our own weakness. There are times when an inward desire to do what is good or safe or right cannot easily overcome the patterns that are ingrained in our life. We made it across the river, but not without fear and trembling. Probably some help for the Lord, from the Lord. But Jesus makes a distinction here that you and I need to take seriously as we face temptation. His instruction to watch and pray is based on his insight that it is possible for us to have an inward desire that is spiritually good that will be wrecked by what he describes here as the weakness of the flesh. Now listen, Jesus doesn't just mean physical strength here. The flesh in the New Testament is best understood as our habits of sinful weakness stored up in our bodily life. That our body sort of stores up habits. We have ruts in our life of how we respond to situations, how we cope with difficulties. The deeper worn ruts of our coping mechanisms, the places where we have given in consistently, even innocent places where we've been hurt or harmed, our reservoirs of wrong thinking that we have not examined. Listen, spiritual desire to honor the Lord must be coupled with spiritual practices that build maturity and ready us for temptation we face in life or we will fall when the pressure comes. Otherwise, we will find ourselves with a genuine desire to do what is good and weakness in carrying it out in the moments that matter. We need more than a willing spirit, and Jesus knows it. We need a prepared life that is only gained by watchfulness and prayer about the real dangers that we face and how we can devote ourselves to the Lord as we face them. We need a knowledge of our own weakness and a reliance on God that is heightened when those weaknesses are challenged. And the only way to gain it is to watch and pray. Let's look how it ends. Notice the disciples are still asleep. Jesus has returned again for a third time. The moment's come. And he knows it. Peter will fight against what Jesus has said is coming all along. The other disciples flee as Jesus is arrested. Peter will deny the Lord, even though in his spiritual exuberance he said he would die with him. James and John, who are the other two close by, who asked to be on his right and left in his kingdom and promised that they could join him in his suffering, will flee from the scene and abandon him in this critical moment. And right beforehand, they're asleep when Jesus said, watch and pray. But Jesus, Jesus got up from that moment and he devoted himself to the task of laying down his life for sinners like them and sinners like us. You may have failed in your fight against sin. They may have failed in that moment. But because Jesus was faithful, 
Because Jesus counted the cost, he was willing to fulfill his calling and go to the cross and drink the cup of our sin and the justice it deserves. Because of that, even when we fall, we have hope. Even when we lose, we have victory. And Jesus can say to us in this moment, get up, watch and pray that you fall not into temptation. And we can know that our sins have been forgiven. Our hope has been secured. And we have victory in the battle. You may have failed in your fight against sin, but because Jesus was faithful to the will of God, we experience his victory as a gift. And every fight we have in the battle against temptation is under the banner of his success. So brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. Hear the Savior, watch and pray. Don't be discouraged. Stand up and by the power of the Holy Spirit, watch and pray. Brothers, sisters, don't lose hope. Look to the resurrection and know that your eternity is secure through faith in Jesus and not your own performance. And watch and pray. You may be here today and you have trusted in your own power and your own strength. There's been moments in your life where you've wanted to make changes. You find yourself falling and unprepared. You need to know this morning that Jesus kneeled in that garden to pay the cost so that in your failure you could be forgiven, your guilt removed, your shame covered, and you could be renewed in a relationship with God because of what Jesus accomplished for you at the cross. And because he succeeded, you can be secured. If, and, and, you know, we often think that God is waiting for us to prove ourselves to him. But he, what's really true is he's waiting for us to acknowledge our weakness and failure and to glory in the success and rejoicing that comes with knowing that Jesus succeeded. Today, if you'll trust in him, God will forgive you of your sin. He will strengthen you. He'll fill you with his Holy Spirit. He'll, he'll help you. Be empowered in your ongoing fight against sin. But it begins with a first step of saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Let's bow our heads. This morning as we prepare to go into a time of taking the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you to examine your own heart and your own life. Maybe there's some way in which in this moment, before we celebrate what Jesus has done, you need to confess your sin to the Lord. There in this moment, don't worry about what anyone else is doing. But maybe you need a time of consecration, time of devotion. I want you to just take that moment here in the quietness before we head out into the rest of a busy day and a busy week to speak to the Lord with honesty. What do you need to do to respond? Maybe you're here and you would Confess that you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus and today is the day that you need to stop resisting and you need to trust in faith that what Jesus accomplished is enough for you to be saved and forgiven. Lord, we pray right now, Lord, in this moment that your spirit would work in our midst, that you would teach us what it means to watch and pray, that you would protect us from temptation. It would remind us deeply of the devotion of the Lord Jesus that we would learn to prepare ourselves even for costly 
obedience. Lord, that we would discern in our own life the ways in which we often press into situations where we're overconfident that our spirit of desire to obey you will carry us through when other things have often trapped us. Lord, would you reveal our hearts and examine us even this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.